0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
2: heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline
3: Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
4: Bloomberg's world headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's off. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, as analysts call out a perfect storm in the markets amid sapping sentiment. Look at the outlook for the tech sector. Hillary Frisch is with us, ClearBridge Research. Plus, crypto's calm. It shatters. Liquidations exceeding a billion dollars in twenty-four hours as prices they fall. We'll break down what's behind Bitcoin's volatile moves. And it's gearing up to be the biggest IPO of the year. Chipmaker Arm is said to line up not one, not two, but 28 banks for its public offering. We'll bring you the latest of the company. And who else is eyeing the IPO window? But first, there's really rather extraordinary earnings coming after the bell today as well. We want to talk about all of this with Hilary Frisch, Senior Research Analyst for Technology Software over at Clearbridge, and of course, decades of experience, Hilary, that we turn to in these moments, because it is kind of a perfect storm. Barclays countering that, talking for liquidity, worries about China. We, of course, then also see the bond market selling off. Is it okay to stick with your technology holdings right now?
5: That's a really good question, Caroline. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, well, <laughs> with the tenure rising as rapidly as it is currently, it makes it hard for technology to outperform, especially the long bond-esque technology that we think about with cloud and uh, SaaS applications. But at the end of the day, the fundamentals seem to be set to improve. So I would look to the current environment to build positions, to add positions. Okay, so talk about the fundamentals that will
4: improve. Are you talking artificial intelligence, idiosyncratic elements or are you talking that generally
5: the economy in the US isn't quite as dire as some had thought it might be? Well, there there are a few factors. Artificial intelligence absolutely plays into it. I'm of the view of rolling recessions. I believe that tech has been in a very mild recession over the course of the better part of the last year. Uh, And without that recession actually having materialized, I think that tech was poised to improve. Enterprise tech was poised to see an improvement overall as budgets had really been set for a recessionary environment. Um, In addition, in terms of future earnings, there were a few sort of green shoots. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the companies talked about the optimization, workload optimization, cost reduction focus of customers starting to wane, starting to show signs of waning. There were new project uh, starts and new project uh, pickups and new new workload starts, so that's actually quite encouraging. Um, And then you saw tech layoffs starting to wane. They really slowed a lot over the last few quarters. Management teams talked about increased visibility and improvement in their businesses through the quarter. So I think overall, and then on top of it we have AI, which which should be a big driver. How much is China a worry from your perspective? It's a worry only insofar as the the geopolitical backdrop creates um, shocks to the economy, which can delay recovery. But I don't view it as a direct concern for particularly cloud and SaaS names. I think corporate. Uh, uh, I think enterprise and corporate customers around the globe have imperatives which they need to pursue. They've delayed those for essentially nine months plus, and I think they're ready to get underway with them, you know, more or less um, unless we have a massive shock to the economy.
4: It's interesting that you were seeing the green shoots coming from these earnings. Some might say "Mm, Apple was a bit of underwhelming, Microsoft too. From your perspective, How are these companies proving themselves? Is it that just we as investors or indeed analysts, when they've got all the buy ratings out and the shares have risen so far, we're just too much priced to perfection at this moment, as Abigail was outlining?
5: So, yes, (laughs) you're outlining it well. So I think uh, what happened is we had a very, very strong first half in the group. It was compelling from a price performance perspective. Investors got very enthused about AI. But particularly with respect to Microsoft's results, I viewed the reaction as more of a mismatch, a timing mismatch Mm. versus anything. Um, Microsoft's quarter was in line, um, and their commentary on AI was a little underwhelming, a little more tepid than investors expected, but they proceeded to explain that they hadn't actually introduced the majority of AI-enabled na- applications, which investors were very excited about, customers are getting excited about. In addition, some of the key uh, semiconductor chips that are needed to train and run these large language models weren't actually available yet. In fact, only a small swath of them became available only very recently. So so um, I viewed the results as not a demand indicator. I think demand continues to build, and these companies are doing extraordinarily well. They have a plan of what they plan to deliver over the course of the year. It was just a timing mismatch in terms of
4: And so when you were talking about the fact that in this sort of environment where I'm looking at the NASDAQ 100 off by 2.2% on the week, we've had three straight weeks of losses on that
5: benchmark. Where do you make additions? You were saying maybe you might be buying in this dip market. Sure. from a valuation perspective in enterprise overall, we had actually been within the pre-pandemic five and ten year averages earlier in the year when I was here in February. Uh, we gained a few multiple turns since that point. We've been giving up some of those multiple turns. But over time, I do expect AI to contribute meaningfully to results and actually to drive so both growth and valuation over time. So I would be looking to but again, the ten year arb- is the arbiter of everything near term. <laughs> it feels like it wants to go toward five percent. I'm not a, I'm not an economist. If it does that, there's certainly more pain to come in tech. But I would be adding incrementally as we move forward because it's anyone's guess as to where that really lands. Would you be adding to cyber names? We're all looking at Palo Alto. We're going to dig into that one in a moment as to why on earth they're coming after the bell today. Uh, I like cyber. I think cyber fundamentals are generally resilient. We've seen some weakness in firewalls in the firewall arena to date, and I think that's partially a function of having been supply constrained for so many years, and there was a lot of exuberant customer ordering, let's call it that. So I think we're normalizing after that. I tend near-term to favor some of the um, next generation cyber uh, names such as uh, CrowdStriker or a Z- Z- Zscaler, which are tied very much to zero trust initiatives. There are government mandates behind that. Part of the Inflation Reduction Act has spent behind that. But at the end of the day, um, Palo Alto itself is a, is a um, leader in technology. I think for today's you asked about today's Mm -hmm. (laughs) announcement very conveniently on a Friday in late August with a (laughs) two-hour conference call. Um, I think uh, it's time for them to give their three-year plan, which they did three years ago. I've noted that when they do that, they tend to be conservative at the outset of the plan. Uh, It seems like they also want to announce some amount of change. It may be that they're shifting toward annual billions from Mm multi-year upfront billions. That would actually uh, hurt free cash flow and uh, billions to some degree. They may want to pursue certain areas such as a zero trust more actively. It's hard to tell. Um, some of this is anticipated by, by investors. Uh, it's hard to tell the magnitude, though, and exactly what they're going to announce. You're right. The stock down significantly since they announced
4: this date. Henry Frisch, always great to have you in the studio. Come back soon, we hope, from Clearbridge. really interesting takes on individual names, individual valuations, and let's dig in on that name we were just talking about, Palo Alto Networks, because August the 2nd was when we really started to see the stock sell off, because they said that they were going to be reporting results on a Friday. Today, after the bell, highly unusual. This is a company that usually gives us its numbers on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, It's giving investors some cause for concern. I'm pleased to say that Bloomberg's Ryan Vlastelica is is with us, of course, who's looking at sort of what PR disaster this could be if indeed they are trying to bury some sort of bad news. Everyone's braced for it. What, the stock's off by about 20% since they first announced this date?
6: Yeah, absolutely. This is extremely unusual. This is the first Friday afternoon report that we've seen since Nike in late 2020. So think about all those different quarterly reports we've had, all those earnings seasons. This is the first time we've had it since then. So very unusual, very atypical. Uh, I spoke with the company, and a spokesperson told me that between everything they have going on, they're doing results, they're giving an outlook look. I just mentioned they are giving uh, three-year medium-term targets. Uh, they're announcing a strategy review, and they have a sales uh, networking meeting next week. So they have a lot going on, and the t- company told me, they just want to give investors and analysts time to digest all the news that's coming out, uh, which sounds like it's going to be a lot, but again, it is very atypical as far as the timing goes.
4: I think what's also added to concern is Fortinet, mm-hmm. right? Another yes. cyber company that saw, well, less big gains than many had anticipated. What are the head wins facing some of these
6: cyber companies at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So Palo Alto comes out and says it's going to be a Friday. The stock falls off. You can see in your chart there. A couple of days later, Fortinet comes out and they cut their outlook. They're basically talking about weaker IT spending. And cybersecurity has always been an area that people feel like is pretty secure, pretty durable as far as the demand goes. There's always going to be demand for improving cyber. Uh, you know, against any kind of hacks or threats like that. So the fact that people might be seeing weakness in this very defensive area of software, which is seen as another kind of headwind for the stock, coming after this unusual date.
4: And what did we hear in particular in terms of just the macro environment weighing on clients' desire to be upping their spend or thinking about curtailing or fine-tuning their cyber spend? Is that what we heard from some of the others in the space?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So just some signs of some weaker spending. Maybe it's taking longer for deals to close. or the deals aren't as big as maybe might have been expected before, just all these kinds of issues, just kind of heightening the kind of concerns about the global macroeconomic backdrop as it pertains to security software spending in particular.
4: Really great to get your take. Um, I hope it's not too long a day for you this Friday to be working after (laughs) the bell. Ryan Blastelico is going to be there with the other uh, investors keenly awaiting that number to drop. We really appreciate it. That unusual calm in the crypto markets, well, it's over, this week at least. Sudden Bitcoin sell-off sparked by, well, maybe it's concerns over interest rates, maybe it's potential big sales of certain types of the asset. Let's talk about that route that pushed Bitcoin below 26,000 for the first time in two months. Please, to say Stephen Aguiar is with us. He's got plenty of insight, co-founder and CEO of GivePact, its crypto fundraising platform focused on social impact, metaverse economy. But Stephen, do you... By some of the rumors in the market that perhaps this is sparked by one key big seller, that is SpaceX, they were the reports coming from the Wall Street Journal, or is this just thin markets?
7: I think it's just market structure. I think the SpaceX uh, selling probably already happened. Um, What we saw in the last few months was Bitcoin and Ethereum trading at all-time low volatility. Meanwhile, market makers were pulling out of the ecosystem. So we had a very illiquid market, and open interest on futures was ramping up significantly. So the move was expected. I think we saw there had to be a flush out. We didn't know if it was going to be to the upside or to the downside. But as the dollar has been getting strong recently... A little bit of a sell off in crypto meant that longs were liquidated and we saw a sharp quick move to the downside.
4: I mean, everyone's now eyeing the $25,000 level as some sort of technical line in the sand. But is there any catalyst to the upside? Because many had started to desire to get into Bitcoin because there were hopes of some sort of spot Bitcoin ETF, for example.
7: I think there are a lot of catalysts to the upside. I think you had a spot BT, uh, BTC ETF, which Mike Novogratz on the Galaxy call basically said is a matter of when, not if. Um, You have the halving next year, which um, typically there's a bull run after the halving, but it could be something where we see a rally into it. We have the SEC case against Coinbase looking shaky after Judge Torres basically said that, you know, tokens traded on secondary exchanges aren't investment contracts. Um, and lastly, you have the Fed tightening cycle. You mm-hmm. know, it's topping out. Um, so I think there's a lot of catalysts that you know basically are laying the narrative for what the future crypto bull run could look like.
4: I'm interested that you talk of course about the the Bitcoin spot ETF and what Mike said about it on the call for Galaxy. What about this talk around an ETH ETF, or at least an ETH futures one? How much would that galvanize interest in some of the alternative coins?
7: I think it's huge. I think. You know, the, that news happening within minutes or hours of this liquidation is really interesting. Um, but I think the main thing for me with the ETH futures ETF, it basically means that Ethereum won't be a security. Um, I think that ship has sailed um, and it's going to allow people to get a lot more exposure to ETH than they would have. Um, the same way the people get exposure to Bitcoin through the futures ETF. Um, so I think it's huge. Um, I don't know how deep down sort of the coin market cap we can go as far as what's going to be considered a security or not. Mm. But I think for sure Ethereum, that ship has sailed um, and Ethereum will be considered a commodity regulated by the CFTC moving forward.
4: Just go back to what you said at the start of that answer and the fact that these timings happened almost you know, hours apart from each other. What do you mean by that? Was there any way that you think that that was catalyzing a sell off in Bitcoin?
7: I don't think uh, there was any specific timing or reason. I'm, I mean, I'm not really sure. I don't want to be conspiratorial. Um, again, I think the the cause for the liquidation was more market structure than anything. I think it might have been an a interesting coincidence to see that that uh, ETH futures ETF was approved within hours of, of that liquidation event yesterday.
4: Can you just talk a little bit about who the marginal buyer is at the moment or indeed where we're seeing people getting interested, if you do say there's catalysts to the upside of Bitcoin and indeed some of the other alternative coins, who is buying into this market regionally speaking, institutionally speaking?
7: We're seeing long term holders really taking over right now and short term holders are the ones that are are getting sort of fleeced out at the moment. Um, I think the marginal buyer, one big catalyst for me is going to be Coinbase and their base chain. Um, I think what they're doing really is disrupting themselves with that and they're going to do a lot to bring retail. Um, and their assets on-chain. So I think what we saw in sort of the demise of the last crypto bull run was this these blow ups of centralized entities. And I think Coinbase is really laying the groundwork for retail to put their assets in decentralized entities in DeFi, NFTs, um, decentralized apps. And I think that's gonna be a huge narrative um, shift and a big rotation in where the marginal buyer comes and where they where they park their assets.
4: Steven Aguiar, thank you very much for joining us today. GivePak COO, co-founder as well, on all that recent return, shall we say, to volatility when it comes to crypto. Now, talking about volatility, it's been a volatile week for Adyen, of course. The Dutch payment processing company, when it released its disappointing first-half results, it's tricking an absolute meltdown in the stock. Remember, it raised about $20 billion in market value yesterday. Now, in an interview with Bloomberg Television, its co-head says, look, on the back of this weakness, there's not going to be share buybacks. Just take a listen.
7: We're focused on building a business, uh, and we've always had a, a policy where we continue to invest our funds uh, in, 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 in the business, and that's what we continue to do. It's clear that we, we lost some trust yesterday, and uh, yeah, I think the best approach to this is now
2: very carefully listening to, uh, to our investors and see how we can get back some of that trust.
4: Adyen's co-CEO feeling the need to come and talk to the market, post those earnings. Meanwhile, now coming up, I'm preparing for the biggest IPO of the year with no less than 28 banks. We'll bring you the details next. There's is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Time now for Talking Tech. First up, look, American trade groups comprising the biggest players in technology and manufacturing, well, they've asked the U.S. government to urge India to reconsider a policy introduced on tech imports that would impose a new license requirement. The coalition includes some America's largest businesses, including Apple and Intel. Meanwhile, the largest U.S. maker of chip-making machinery gave a pretty bullish forecast for the current quarter, indicating the industry slump may be fading. Applied materials sees the shift towards artificial intelligence, of course, and the rise of internet-connected devices helping bolster its results. Plus, it's on track to be the biggest IPO of the year. SoftBank-backed ARM, when it's filed, we understand a whole roster of underwriters for its initial public offering, 28 banks in all for the deal. Now, the company is aiming to be valued in a listing we understand to be, well, a 60 to 70 billion dollar valuation. Let's dig into it. Leanna Baker is the person who knows so much about this potential listing here at Bloomberg. And just tell us why 28 banks are needed in all their various tiers of importance. So it sounds like it's too many banks, but remember
8: that Meta or Facebook, when they went public many years ago, they had about 35 underwriters. So when you have um, a large amount of shares that you need to get out to the market, it helps to have different banks to syndicate out the shares to clients. Arm could raise several billion dollars. It's supposed to be in the top five IPOs in tech of all time. So they're going to need all the banks to get to work. However, it could also be a relationship building exercise for ARM. Uh, They want to keep good relationships with all the banks and that's why you'll see, you know, the who's who of Wall Street on this one.
4: It certainly is and international in that nature, of course, because they want an international investor base. I mean, I'm interested as to basically how they're going to be eyeing this current market volatility and whether that really matters when they're trying to be getting this pretty hefty valuation.
8: There's certainly been a dead IPO market, and there's a lot of hopes that this will open things up. We also reported yesterday that Instacart is looking to go public in September. So it feels like Arm is kind of warming things up for everyone. Uh, Instacart won't be as big of an IPO as Arm and doesn't have the global implications, but uh, there's still others to look forward to because it just really has been such a dreary year for IPOs and the bankers working on uh, these kind of transactions.
4: What is it? Only about 14 billion IPOs this year compared to something like 240 back in 2021. Leanna Baker, we thank you so much for all the inside track. We wait with bated breath on the arm. Well, intricacies. And we also do for Instacart. That was a great scoop. We just heard Leanna talking about it, how it's planning for an initial public offering as soon as September, all according to sources. company could publicly file its plans with the SEC as soon as next week. Now, Instacart previously considered a direct listing, remember, which made cool weather likes to Spotify. But now it's understanding that it plans to do a traditional IPO on the Nasdaq. A representative for Instacart declined to comment. (laughs) Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's talk about more cybersecurity because, of course, Palo Alto Networks is one of them. There's Relatively new kid on the block since 2018, Abnormal Security, but is an AI-native cybersecurity company, protects organisations from a whole host of email attacks, business email compromise, vendor fraud, malware, and credential phishing. I'm pleased to say that we can speak with Evan Reiser, he's Abnormal Security CEO, to discuss well how you're using the joyous world of generative AI within cybersecurity, how cyber attackers are using it, but first, like, how are we seeing risks dial up? because of the new large language model era we're
2: in? Well, first of all, thank you, thank you so much for having me. I think AI is really exciting because it's gonna have a profound effect on the way everyone uses technology. Um, unfortunately, criminals are also very excited to use this technology. There's really kind of three things we see criminals using to take advantage of AI. So one is that even petty criminals that don't, don't have uh, cybersecurity skills, they can now use things like ChatGPT to become very proficient in kind of technology, language skills to help them watch phishing attacks, We see the automation abilities of some of these uh, generative models allow people to set up more attacks. And maybe most scary of all, um, these models allow people to create very sophisticated nation-state level attacks, Mm. even by the petty criminals. So I think it's going to be a brave new world for cybersecurity.
4: I mean, of course, you were founded in 2018 before the whole furor around ChatGPT and the like. But have you seen suddenly the scale, the wall, the worry just dial up? Are you having to fight more cyber attacks?
2: Um, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, overall cyber cyber attacks continue to go up and to the right. Um, with generative AI and especially easy easy to access tools like ChatGPT, now criminals are using these to send more targeted phishing attacks, more complex types of fraud, and more sophisticated forms of social engineering. So I expect, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's going to be going up and up to the right for a while, but uh, we're hoping to make that curve go down.
4: I don't think that's bad for your revenue run rates, right? Because of course, more demand is no bad thing for you to a certain extent, Evan. Can you talk us through some of the milestones you've been hitting and how you're taking that to the market at the moment in terms of, or potentially even fundraising?
2: Um, yes, uh, so abnormal Security, you know, we're only about a five-year-old company. We launched our product four years ago. We announced this week we hit hundred million dollars in recurring revenue. Um, so we've had a lot of success. I really attribute that success to the importance of kind of email security as our, our first product. Uh, email security is the number one cause of financial loss, number one cyber crime, biggest attack vector. So I think that speaks to both the um, opportunity to we have to protect customers, but also the powers of the AI technology we use internally to go help stop things like phishing fraud and social engineering.
4: What's interesting is your relationship with CrowdStrike, for example, and the fact that you've sort of raised money from them and got a clear partner going forward. What do you see your future as evolving as with abnormal security? Will you remain an independent company and will you fold into another?
2: Oh, no, we definitely built the company from day one to be an independent company. We do expect an IPO in the future, but the exact time of that is not super important to us. We're probably focused on just helping our customers and really taking advantage of some of these new AI technologies to stop the next generation of cyber attacks. And we're very fortunate to work with great customers like or great partners like CrowdStrike um, that really share our our kind of mission and values around protecting customers and building um, deep platforms that integrate, cleanly together to create the best customer outcomes. So very, very fortunate to... Uh, all of our employees, partners and customers that helped us get to where we are today.
4: Where are you in terms of global demand? Who are your key customers, for example?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We're primarily focused um, in North America today. Um, we will be expanding a lot more internationally, um, and even though we've only been in the market for about four years, today we protect more than 12% of the Fortune 500. We expect that to, to grow substantially over the next couple of years, um, and really we see email security and more generally cloud security a global problem. So our ambition is to go protect you know, every organization, every person in the world
4: you an AI optimist, you uh, worried. I mean, it feels an age and eternity ago since all these letters were being written about ex- existential issues to do with AI, but where do you sit on that?
2: So I, I think, you know, AI is a tool and like all tools it can be used for good and bad. I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, AI is going to have a huge impact on the world and I'm very bullish on the long-term prospects. I do think the next year or two are going to be a little bit scary, especially as criminals get access to more degenerative AI tools. In the last two months, we've seen... More sophisticated attacks coming from generative AI, you know, phishing and social engineering than we've ever seen in the last five years. So I think the next years are a little bit scary, but uh, I'm very bullish long-term the opportunity for AI to not just uh, help, customer, help our customers protect their organizations, but also have a transformative effect for how we use technology.
4: Ultimately, are you seeing more interest from VCs? I know you're saying you're eventually eyeing an IPO, and you only did a Series B, what, uh, Series C even relatively recently, but are you looking at opportunities as everyone wants to be allocating some of their funds to AI winners?
2: I think there's, there's no shortage of interest in companies that are really AI-native, focusing on real customer problems. That the kind of hundred million dollar, you know, plus uh, ARR scale. So there's no shortage of interest. But you know, we operate a very, you know, sustainable, durable business. We have no need to raise any more money. Um, so we're, right now, we're just focused on expanding both our technology platform and helping go protect more customers around the world.
4: You're a seasoned technologist and been part of big teams. I've got to ask you, you were pretty significant within Twitter at one point really thinking about how its own machine learning was working within the advertising unit of Twitter. What do you think of X? Do you use it? How are you feeling about the development of that company?
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know too much about it. I primarily focus now on, on cybersecurity. My background is in machine learning and AI coming from the ads world, uh, but I've lost a little bit of touch, right? Today, we're taking some of the same core technologies around understanding the uh, behavior and interests and kind of the way people respond to different uh, interactions, right? And applying that to cybersecurity. So from a technology perspective, we're very similar, but uh, yeah, different different use case. And I'm really excited to start using um, some of the technologies that we built in ads that were originally designed to get people to click on ads, uh, to now use for a much more worthy cause, which is helping go stop crime. Well, you dodged it, Evan. We'll <laughs> Evan
4: Reiser, <I> <laughs> normal security CEO, sticking very much with his theme of cybersecurity and his own company. And we thank him for that.
0: We're in San Francisco, and this is the world's first fully anaerobic bacteria factory. It makes these cutting-edge life therapeutics, or probiotics, to you and me. Pendulum is the metabolic health startup backed by VCs with Halle Berry on the team. It chose SF because it was the best city to build a high-tech bacteria factory that needs a 100% oxygen-free environment. Here's how it works. Step one, take a frozen sample of your desired bacteria. Then, swab an agar dish with your sample and start to A specific colony of bacteria is picked, inoculated, and the density is scaled up. At each stage, the sample is tested for contaminants. In anaerobic fermentation, the bacteria still needs food. This is the food. It's blended with special water from this machine in a super high-tech vacuum bag and inert gases are added for the perfect environment. Later, the bacteria starter is combined with the food solution and allowed to ferment. Once at the right density, the bacteria is drawn out to this machine and collected like a slurry or like a bacteria milkshake. Then they pour it in this cake pan tray thing. The paste is blast chilled in nitrogen, tested again, freeze-dried and then stored in super fridges. Finally, the freeze-dried bacteria cake ground to a powder, it's shipped off and put into those little capsules and bottled.
4: And you just know how much he loved geeking out over that one. Meanwhile, let, let's stick with healthcare. And in fact, we want to talk about how advancements from artificial intelligence technology is going to help revolutionize a space that wasn't included in US clinical trials legally until 1993. It was women's health. It was minorities' health. Let's talk about all of this. Priyanka Jain, the CEO and co-founder of Evie. It's a startup looking to leverage overlooked biomarkers in the female body, backed by General Catalyst, by BBG Ventures, G9 Ventures, a whole host of big VCs. How much are you seeing this whole wave of interest in artificial intelligence benefit your run rate at the moment with Evie? Yeah,
9: definitely. It's a great question. I mean, we started Evie because of the proliferation of AI in healthcare, Hmm. right, where you're seeing that so many companies are finally leveraging data to make the healthcare experience more effective. But what we've realized is that, given what you just said, that women weren't even in clinical research until 1993, there's so much missing data on the female body, right? And if we're going to train all these algorithms to help us understand what's going wrong at the doctor's office or what's most likely to help us, but it didn't include anyone who looked like you and I. Who's to say that's going to be effective on us? And so we really set out to say, what would it look like to build a precision healthcare platform that was actually centered on the female body? What are the data sets that are missing in our understanding and ability to do that?
4: So almost you call yourself well, a healthcare company more because you must have to go around getting all the samples and the data. I mean, yeah. how does one source that to be able to then run your AI models on
9: them? Yeah, great question. So we actually run um, a precision female healthcare service. And we're specifically focused on the vaginal microbiome because it's actually the leading reason that women go to the doctor in the US. Um, it, and when we go to the doctor, we're more likely to be misdiagnosed than correctly diagnosed. Hmm. And we're more likely not to get better than we are to get better. And so we built a platform finally leveraging technology and data to better characterize What is actually going on for somebody? So we have first of its kind precision testing. And then we actually use data, technology, AI, to understand what's most likely to help that specific person. Because it turns out, obviously, no two people are the same. No two women are the same. Um, And so by actually delivering much better care that's powered by data, we're actually gathering the data on the back end to be able to enable a much better future of women's healthcare.
4: I'm kind of still stuck on the fact that more women get worse than get better. Yes. (laughs)
9: Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, How,
4: who is therefore adopting this? Who are you managing to get on board from the healthcare community to want to start to use this within not just trials, but in real world applications?
9: Yeah, such a good question. So I think the first person who's always the most motivated to help things get better is the patient, Mm -hmm. is the person who's suffering. And so what we've seen is that there's so many women who are suffering with symptoms, not getting answers, not getting better. And they're extremely excited to have new data on their own bodies, right? They're trying to understand. And I think we're seeing this in many industries, right? Where consumers are finally being able to take control of their health because of the proliferation of technology that's made it more affordable and possible to even happen. And so we find that first, it came from the women, the women who were like, we demand better answers. We're going to buy this with our own money because we want to know what's going on. Mm. And what we find is actually that 98% of our members actually choose to have their data become part of research. And I think that speaks so deeply to the frustration that we've felt in the healthcare system and the desire for our daughters to have a better experience. So we started very much with women. And now, finally, a couple of years later, we're really seeing a lot of excitement from doctors, whether it's PCPs, OBGYNs, doctors who frankly are also frustrated that they don't have better tools or better information to help their patients.
4: So when people are saying, well, the existential risks, the cyber risks, the risk concerns around AI, but then we try and look for really where we're going to see dramatic change. You'd say healthcare is sort of first and foremost out there in terms of industries that are going to be disrupted by this?
9: I think absolutely healthcare will be disrupted by AI in so many ways, not only in the ways that we better diagnose people, that we help them come up with better treatments. I think at the end of the day, how can you possibly, in the human brain, understand every single measurement of what's going right and wrong in your body, understand what disease that's most likely to be, and then how you're going to fix it? I mean, it's an impossible task for the human brain, Um, and given the fact that every person is so, so different. Um, But I also think it's really important that it's done carefully and done Mm. well, right? And we think about who what data are we using to train this algorithm? Does it include the people that we're then going to use this algorithm on? And so I think it's very important that we put up the right guardrails, we ask the right questions, and that we don't just assume that AI that's well-designed means it's going to be well-designed for healthcare. And I think healthcare needs its own set of rules and thoughts as we bring this revolutionary technology into the space so that we don't actually widen the gap that already exists. So
4: who's thinking about that? I mean, already you've captured the imaginations of, of VCs. You're clearly managing to get into the world of healthcare. What about the administration? Are you having discussions? I mean, are people coming to some of the startups and indeed the bigger companies within AI to think about rules, guardrails, safety?
9: Yeah, definitely. I think, one, the companies, hopefully, this time around are being a little bit smarter about this. I know it's something we think about all day, every day. Maybe that's because we're a female leadership team, but, you know, it could just be because we're a a company started today. Um, I also think that we're seeing that regulatory bodies like the FDA are looking... interested. They want to understand what the new technologies are and how to set up guidelines. They have a variety of working groups with companies, with industry, um, and also with academics and ethicists. So I have hope that we will build the right guardrails and that when we do that, we will unlock an age of precision medicine where women finally get better, right? Where right now we're diagnosed on average four years later than men across over 700 diseases, right? But imagine if we could actually look at the data in your body and understand what's going on. Like, that gives me a lot of hope.
4: Great storytelling. Great interest in the company. We thank you so much for coming on. And, thank you for having well, me. Well, probably telling a slightly depressing story, but one that might be changing pretty soon. Every co-founder and CEO Priyanka Jain there. Meanwhile, coming up, can OpenAI crack the code for AI to oversee content moderation? We'll discuss that one next. Meanwhile, let's just check out the shares of Uber and Lyft. Once we head to break, we want to look at the companies that they are being threatened Perhaps to stop doing business in Minneapolis. That's after the City Council adopted a new rule Thursday that would set a minimum wage for rideshare drivers. This is all being reported by CNN. Shares, though, on the higher side, on the percentage point. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. Could content moderation look like if you use ChatGPT? Well, OpenAI is testing such systems and has invited customers to also experiment with it. OpenAI says its tools can help businesses perform six months of work in just a day or so. Bloomberg Technologies' Rachel Metz joins us now because I was left a little bit head-scratching on this one because I thought a lot of content moderation was already using AI. How is generative AI changing the game, if at all?
10: You are correct. A lot of content moderation already uses AI, um, uses it in concert with humans. Um, it's a really tough job, and uh, it is not a job that OpenAI is saying turn over entirely to AI, but what they're thinking is a couple of things. One is they think it can help with content moderation, but they also think that it could help companies um, like apply policy changes much more quickly than they might in the past, uh, which is which is an interesting way of looking at it. So this is this is what they're testing out and they're inviting other companies um, to try it out as well um, via their API. So it'll be
4: interesting to see. Can you dig into the refining of policymaking? How does that happen using a generative chatbot?
10: Sure. So, like, what they're saying, for instance, is maybe they would make a, um, maybe they've re- refined uh, their content moderation policy and they want to make it even better to exclude certain kinds of things, like um, uh, different kinds of, talk about different kinds of crime on a social network, for instance, like if someone's saying, can you, how do I steal a car, can you help me steal a car, this was an example they gave in a blog post, and um, Initially, an AI system might not be able to spot that as uh, objectionable content because it might say, "Well, it's not a violent crime," and maybe they were talking about violent crime as being not okay on the social network before. So they could use uh, GPT-4 to sort of help retrain their system really quickly mm. um, with a, like a set of of data that would make that would help make it clear to the system that this is something that's objectionable and then they could roll that out faster the idea would be to roll out these
4: changes faster than they might otherwise how about helping those poor people whose basic job it is to look at all this objectionable content and analyze it is there any path towards not needing the human eye that can be so affected by these things
10: so one of the things about content moderation that's so tricky, um, besides having to, I mean, it's awful that people have to look at really horrible images, and that can be really damaging to people. I mean, we know that. I mean, we can use machines to um, offload some of that or to at least, uh, like, make a top-level decision that can then be passed on to a human to double-check. Um, so that's something that's already being done. I'm, since GPT-4, I, I'm not sure if that's going to be useful for this kind of machine vision task. Um, um, at, at this time, I think they're talking more about um, written stuff. But um, but in general, it's really it's really hard to use machines to offload this stuff entirely because a lot of it is dependent on context, mm. whether it's written or it's an image or a video. What is bad, what looks bad to some person or if I post something and I mean one thing, somebody who is looking at it in another time, another place might not see like my sort of coded message because people are pretty clever on the
4: internet and they don't always just say or post something obviously horrible. This might be just one example of where some people would quite like AI to take their job, but for now, not quite able sure. to. Bloomberg Technologies, Rachel Metz, thank you so much. Meanwhile, that just is, this does it for this edition and this whole week of Bloomberg Technology. But you do not want to forget to check out our podcast, find it on the terminal, go online on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And of course, in the meantime, we wish you a very wonderful weekend. From New York, this is Bloomberg Technology.